good morning. If you'll turn your Bibles to Mark chapter 5. Mark chapter 5 is the first place you'll need to be today. I'll explain that in a minute, but go to Mark chapter 5. Uh, my name is Pat Finley. I'm the pastor of spiritual development here and excited to be able to preach message 4 of this 24-7, 365. So Mark 5 is where you want to go first today. I hope if Pastor Matt called you at 3 in the morning and kind of woke you up half asleep and said, why does First Baptist Broken Arrow exist? That you would mumble back to him half asleep something to the effect of, FBCBA exists to reach BA and beyond by multiplying disciples to follow Jesus. It's what Robbie just talked about, to reach and to multiply. That's simply our articulation of the Great Commission, right? We want to reach people. We want to help them follow Jesus. One recent book defined disciple-making like this. Intentionally equipping believers, intentionally equipping believers with the word of God, through accountable relationships, empowered by the Holy Spirit, in order to replicate faithful followers of Christ. That's the goal. We want to help people know Christ and follow Christ. We want to reach people and we want to help those people multiply others who follow Jesus as well. Again, today is week four of a four-week series entitled 24-7-365. Between now and the end of September, uh, we're praying that these things we're calling 365s will launch. What is a 365? It is a single gender circle of folks a male or female, depending on where you are. And it, it's men meeting with men, women meeting with women. We've got journals like this, and it's journeying along together. There's daily Bible reading, there's prayer, and there is grace-oriented accountability, as Pastor Matt talked about last week. And so we're just trying to help people to let the gospel kind of change us at that deeper level. And the reality is the larger a group gets, the less safe it is to be honest about what you're really going through, right? Like if I said, someone stand up and share with us a sin struggle, like you, right? you'd be like, whoa, what are we doing, right? But even in a small group, it's hard to say, man, I'm just really struggling with this or I'm struggling with that. We're praying that these 365s, groups of men and groups of women, that we can get them together and that it's a safe enough place with an open Bible and the Holy Spirit uh, equally working on everyone in the circle to be able to help us to grow in Christ. Now Jesus, in his earthly ministry, he modeled for us different modes of disciple making or different gears, if you want to think about it that way. Uh, Jesus often would preach and teach to the large crowds that followed him as he did like at the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, at a closer level of teaching and accountability and stuff, Jesus trained the 12 disciples. And, and for us, training the 12 disciples, that's a little bit like the kind of stuff we're hoping, hoping happens in our Sunday school small groups, right? There's a deeper level of training and we're, 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 we're marching together. But then Jesus not only taught the crowds, not only trained the 12, but there were three that he took a little farther, right? We call him Jesus' inner circle. It's Peter, James, and John. And this morning from the Gospel of Mark, we're going to look at three passages where Jesus took only those three disciples just a little bit further. We're just going to kind of skip a rock through these three passages. It's in Mark 5, Mark 9, and Mark 14. But we're going to go to Mark 5 first, so stay there. I'm going to read one verse from all three passages, pray, and then we're going to start in Mark 5 and walk through this together. Today's message is entitled, Farther with the Few. Farther with the Few. 
In Mark chapter 5, Jesus arrives at a home where a little girl has just died. And we read this in Mark 5, 37 on the screen. And he allowed no one to follow him except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. And then over in Mark 9, 2, we read, After six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And Jesus was transfigured before them. In Mark 14, 33, the night before the cross in the Garden of Gethsemane, we read these words. And Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. We pray for us and we'll jump into this first occurrence, scene number one in Mark 5, scene number two in Mark 9, and then scene number three in Mark 14. Let me pray for us this morning. Father God, we pray, Lord, that you would help us to, Lord, to to journey through these three passages, Father. Just, Lord, would you uh, help us to think through, Father, uh, what maybe it was and that you were teaching them, Father. God, we thank you, Lord, for uh, whatever stage someone may be at in their spiritual journey that is their journey along with you. Father, the prayer would be that we're always trying to take the next step with you. And so, Father God, would you show us that next step today? These things you pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, farther with the few, if you'd like extra resources on today's sermon, you can text the word REACH, R-E-A-C-H, to 45776, and you'll get the same uh, information that our Sermon Aligned small groups went through earlier today or are using right now. So there's some more information on that. Now, back to Mark 5. Jesus taught the crowds. He trained the 12. But then he took three just a little bit further. Why did Jesus choose those three? Why did he choose Peter, James, and John? I don't think anybody knows for sure, but we all like to pretend like we've figured it out, right? Here's two reasons I think make a lot of sense to me. Number one, these disciples, Peter, James, and John, were in the group that had followed Jesus the longest. If you read in the Gospels, they're there. They're some of the first that Jesus walks up by the Sea of Galilee and says, come follow me, I'll make you fishers of men. And they leave their stuff and they follow him. Another really great theory is not that Jesus looked back at who, how long they'd been with him, but that Jesus was looking forward at what Peter, James, and John were getting ready to become. I am pumped that next Sunday, Pastor Matt is beginning a journey, Sunday morning journey through the New Testament book of Acts. And it's a series through Acts 1 through 6 is the first one. It's called Startup. It's called Startup. And you can see that there. And so we're going to be learning as we go through Acts, though, here's what we're going to see. All the disciples are kind of named in the first chapter there. But then afterwards, we hear most by name about Peter, John, And James. We see a lot with Peter and John, and then James becomes the first disciple who is martyred by Herod in Acts chapter 12. So, Mark chapter 5, hope you're there on your Bible, phone, tablet, whatever. We're gonna walk through these passages. Look at Mark chapter 5, verse 21. This first scene is the raising of Jairus' daughter. The raising of Jairus' daughter. Matthew 21. And when Jesus crossed again the Sea of Galilee in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him and was beside the sea. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing him, he fell at Jesus' feet. 
Now, the assumption here from what Jairus does is there must have been some kind of pre-existing relationship. And maybe it's that Jairus just knew about Jesus. Maybe Jesus had taught at the synagogue where Jairus was in leadership. But Jairus is on a mission, right? He pushes his way through the crowd and falls at Jesus' feet in utter, utter desperation. And here is what we read in verse 23. Jairus falls at Jesus' feet, verse 23, and implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. The old preacher Alexander McLaren said that Jairus came not only driven by despair, but drawn by trust. And I love that. Not only driven by despair, but drawn by trust. I'm assuming that this little girl's mom and Jairus had done everything they knew to do. And if anybody could help now, they were seeking out the help of the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 24. And so Jesus went with him. And this great crowd, it comes with them as well. It followed along and it thronged about him. Now, in the middle of this story, there's a story with the woman with the issue of blood, and she presses through, and she touches the hem of Jesus' garment, and she's radically healed, and Jesus turns around and says, what was that? And it's incredible, right? Later, right? And so we're moving right along with the Jairus' story. But when Jesus turns and has this interaction with the woman who was healed, he says, woman, go in peace. Your faith has healed you. While he is still saying that, jump down to Mark 5, 35. 535, while Jesus was still speaking this joyful word of hope, there came from the ruler's house some who said, your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? Any hope that Jairus had that Jesus was going to heal his daughter died with the announcement of her death. I know there's, there's some in our church who've experienced the loss of a child. And uh, my wife, Becca, and I have got two kids. I can't imagine all that you have walked through or all that Jairus is feeling in this moment. And yet Jesus is not indifferent to what is happening here. And he's got other plans than just uh, that's the end of this little girl's life on this day. Verse 36, but overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, do not fear, only believe. Okay, stop fearing, continue trusting. Here's what Jesus is saying. He's saying, Jairus, listen, let the same faith that fueled you to my feet be the same faith that draws us to your house. And so they turn towards Jairus' house. Now, verse 37 is the one I read a moment ago. He allowed no one to follow him, Jesus, except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. Right, and so they go, verse 38, when they came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue and Jesus saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. Back then, when you experienced a tragedy or a death in your home, you could get folks to come and it was like the death notice. You could hear the weeping, you could hear the brokenheartedness of the people uh, who were there. And, and so Jesus is there and they're obviously grieving this little girl's death. Verse 39. Jesus walks in and he asks what much as must have seemed to everyone in the house as a really silly question. Jesus walks in and he says, why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. Now, what Jesus says is so bizarre. It's so not in touch with reality. They laugh at Jesus. They laugh at him. They begin to mock. They, and so just as a general rule, laughing with Jesus, good thing. 
Laughing at Jesus, not so good of a thing, right? And I love this because Jesus is like, oh, it's funny, get out, right? And so they laugh at him and he boots them, right? He, he kicks them out of the house. And I love it. Jesus took the child, he put them all outside, but Jesus took the father, took the child's father and mother and those who were with him to where the child was, right? So Peter, James, and John, mom and dad, they go in. Now, some would say, well, that's the reason Jesus only brought Peter, James, and John is maybe the house was small, maybe, but I think this is, this is uh, there seems to be a discipleship side effect here. Jesus is taking them a little further to give them some insight into who he is. Verse 41, taking her by the hand, Jesus said to her, Talitha kumi, which means, little girl, I say to you, arise. Listen, she is dead, no pulse, pale, no breath, and Jesus rouses her from death like you'd wake up a child from sleeping. It's incredible. Jesus wakes up the little girl, and the story closes with two commands. Verse 43, he charged them strictly that no one should know this, and he told them to give her something to eat. And so Peter, James, and John, they're on the inside of this thing. And essentially he says, wait until the Holy Spirit later inspires Matthew, Mark, and Luke and all that. Then tell everybody, but I want you to keep it on the down low for now. And just personally, I love that Jesus is like, now get her a snack. Like she's been dead. She's probably hungry, you know. And here's what's so cool about that. Jesus raises her from the dead. And it's not like he leaves her in ICU and he's like, I'll check back tomorrow. Like she's fine. She's like, get a snack fine. Right, he's raised her from the dead. This incredible miracle. And you know what? Peter, James, and John were right there and they saw it all. Jesus taught the crowds. Jesus trained the 12. But he took the few just a little bit farther. Turn your Bibles to Mark chapter 9. Mark chapter 9. To understand Mark 9, we need to understand what happened the chapter before in Mark 8. And so Mark 8 is where Peter, Jesus says to the disciples, who do you say that I am? And the Holy Spirit helps Peter, and Peter nails it. He's like, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. You're the promised Messiah. Like, that's you. And Jesus is like, on the nose. Like, you got it, man. That's who I am. But in response to the correct confession that Jesus is the Son of God, Jesus immediately turns to the cross. And the importance of that he had come to die, they would go to Jerusalem. Well, Peter, the lead disciple, he doesn't like this a whole lot. And so Peter rebukes Jesus. Like, listen, man, like, things were good. Like, that's who you are. Like, why, why are you going there? All this darkness and crucifixion and death and stuff. And then Jesus rebukes Peter. It's that famous, get behind me, Satan. And so in case you've ever wondered how necessary the cross was for the mission of Christ, to think the cross was not that important is to literally think with the mind of Satan, not the mind of our Lord. God so loved the world that he sent Christ, that he sent Christ, and, and it's essential. And so now we come, right, in Mark 9, 2, after six days. So this is about a week later from the confession, and now we're trucking along. Read along with me in Mark chapter 9, verse 2. After six days, Jesus took with him... Peter and James and John, just the three. And he led them up a high mountain by themselves. He went a little farther with the few. And while he's up there, Jesus is transfigured before them. 
Okay, this is, we call it the Mount of Transfiguration. The word transfigured there in the Greek is where we get our word metamorphosis. Jesus is like a normal looking Jewish rabbi guy and he, like a caterpillar to a butterfly, he radically changes, right? He's transfigured. Look at how it describes it here. He radically changes. His clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. Now, some of you that are really good at laundry are like, no, I don't know, I get stuff pretty white, right? Listen, I mean, he's just, he's so pure. One of the other gospels said he flashed like lightning. And here's what is so cool about this passage. No light shone on Jesus. He was the light, right? This is how Jesus really is. When he comes back again, when he walks into the room, you're gonna squint and know it, amen? This is how he will be at his glorious return. And he gives Peter and James and John just a little preview of how it's going to be when he comes in glory to a creation near you. Now, I love it, uh, Peter. Uh, verse, look at Mark 4, 9, or 9, 4. And there, he, and there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they're talking with Jesus. So on the mount, Jesus is bright white for a brief moment. Uh, that veil between eternity and this world gets really thin. And in step, Moses, who represents the Old Testament and the, the, the law and all that. And in steps, Elijah, who both represents the prophets and the, the one like Elijah would come, right? So it points forward to the future. And so these guys step into the mountain. And Mark's gospel says they were talking Okay, Luke's gospel is a little bit more specific. He says they were talking about Jesus' departure, literally his exodus, which is super cool. Like Jesus was discussing his exodus with, exodus with Moses, and that's another sermon for another time. But it's just incredible, right? Now, Peter, he's just taking all this in. I'm sure the disciples, like their eyes were wide, their mouths were hanging open. They're like, what is happening? This is amazing. And so somewhere in the middle of this, Peter has like a flashback from a Bass Pro Cabela's commercial he saw one time. Um, and so he realizes something significant's happening here. And so verse 5, Peter says to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Yes, it is. Good call, Peter. He says, let us make three tents. One for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. So Peter, he recognizes, man, this is special. Let's, let's stay in this moment. Let's set up some tabernacles. Let's spend some time together. And I love it. The gospel writers, because Peter said that, they just kind of throw him under the bus. Because almost all of it, Mark says, yeah, he didn't know what to say. He was terrified. Right, And one of the other gospels says, Peter didn't know what he was talking about. And the implication is, they're so dumbfounded, he doesn't know what, he just like, he's nervous, so he just starts talking. Hey, we should, uh, you want to go build a tent? You know, I mean, they just start talking through that. Now, I love this. As it was when Christ was baptized, God the Father and a glory cloud come rolling in. And it is actually the Father from heaven who answers Peter's suggestion. I love this. If you look down at verse 7, and a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And so listen to him. The command to listen means more than just hear. It means to obey. And the point is like, Peter, listen. He told you about, you got it right who he is, but here's what he came to do. Listen to him. Listen to him. And then God visually is like, maybe you need a picture of how this is going to work now. They look up and look at verse 8. Suddenly looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. 
These figureheads of the Old Testament covenant, they are gone. And it is Jesus alone, Jesus only, Jesus always. This is the fullness of God's revelation. This is God's final word. This is who I want you to listen. This is who I want you to obey. And Peter, James, and John saw the whole thing. Jesus taught the crowds. He trained the 12, but he took those three just a little bit farther. Turn over to Mark 14. Now, from the glorious celebration of the top of the Mount of Transfiguration, when you get to Mark 14, we've gone to the other end of the continuum. This is the night before the cross. Jesus is heading to the Garden of Gethsemane to pray. Um, the, my sins and yours, like this, there's this, this transaction beginning to happen. Judas Iscariot has already left and has gone to find the soldiers to bring them to arrest Jesus. And that's the moment now that we step into in Mark 14, 32. And they went to a place called Gethsemane. And Jesus said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter, James, and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. So the language here leads me to believe that he brought all 12 into the garden and then had the nine kind of hang out here. But then he took Peter, James, and John a little farther with him into the garden. He wanted his, his inner circle, these, these men that were closest to him. Like, I want you to pray for him. Verse 34, Jesus said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. And going a little farther, he fell on the ground and he prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, Daddy, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. Listen, this is one of the most intimate moments of just Jesus kind of just raw. And I can't begin to wrap my mind around the whole God, the Son, the Spirit, and the Father all on the same page. I mean, Jesus has known the whole time that the cross is the reason that he came, that this is God's, uh, how God's going to deal with sin, how God's going to make a way for any sinner to be made right with him in Christ. I mean, this is the plan, and Jesus has known this the whole time, right, all through the gospel. But then all of a sudden here in Mark 14, something has changed the, the, the temperature in the garden. And so Jesus, who has been unshakable in his mission, all of a sudden trembles a little. He, he trembles a little bit. And the question is, what all of a sudden made Jesus shudder? And the answer is that the metaphor of the cup. Jesus talked about, it, Lord, if there's another way. Now Jesus knows, like, this is the way. But you see this, this struggle within him of, man, this this is going to hurt in a lot of ways that people for years afterwards are going to try to understand all that I went through. That cup is a metaphor from the Old Testament about the cup of God's wrath, right? God's judgment on our sins. And so Jesus looks into the cup and there's something in there so horrific to him that it shakes him. And you know what he saw in the cup? Me and my sins. And the judgment my sins deserve, and you and the judgment your sins deserved. 
Like that's what he's getting ready to take upon himself. You know, we talk a lot about the physical suffering of the cross and literally excruciating means out of the cross. But I sometimes wonder if the spiritual, emotional suffering wasn't even worse. As 2 Corinthians 5.21 says that on the cross that God made him who knew no sin, pure, to be sin for us, to be the sin offering that we could trade our death for his life. We could trade our sin for his righteousness. You think about a person who rejects Christ, a person who never trusts Christ, standing before the judgment throne of God with nothing but themselves and their own sin and the wrath that that single person would deserve. Jesus looks into the cup and it's like all there. And it shakes him. And so I think Peter, James, and John, as they're, they're watching this, as they're hearing this, think about what it says to them that, that Jesus is like, Lord, if there could be another way, but then Jesus, he comes back to the answer, right? Father, ultimately, Lord, we're on the same page here. It's not my will, Lord, but it's yours be done. It's not my will, but it's yours be done. On the cross, Jesus drank our cup of wrath so we could have his cup of life. What a, what a gift, what a, what a trade, what an incredible thing that Jesus does and so with the weight of his sin on his shoulders, he's asked him to pray. And, and then he comes back in Mark 9, 37. He came and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. Indeed, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Jesus so desperately was calling them to a prayer time. And they just couldn't help but turn it into a nap time. Three more times, two more times, Jesus goes and prays and comes back and they're asleep and he wakes them and he goes and prays and he comes back and they're asleep. And then ultimately Judas comes and, and then the entire events of the cross take place. And Peter, James, and John get an inside picture of Jesus in Gethsemane that the other nine disciples do not. So what does all this mean for us in 365s? And, and, and there's some things, I mean, we're, we're, we're thinking through implications today, but I want to show you a picture that somebody told me looks like Bible Jeopardy, but it's not. But here is all the disciples in the order in which they are listed in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and Acts, okay? Now, just for fun, okay, notice across the lists, the, 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 in the red team, if you will, Red team leader uh, is Peter all the way across. Now, in the three spaces below there, you've got Andrew, James, son of Deb Zebedee, and John. They're not all in the same order, but all three of those guys are there in that first block. Now, the second white robe, you've got Philip listed in the same place in every gospel's account. Then you've got Bartholomew, Nathaniel, and John, Thomas, and Matthew. They're all there. They're just listed in different places. And then down here at the bottom, you've got James, son of Alphaeus. And then there's some rotation again. This is where Judas Iscariot was. You've got Thaddeus, Simon the Zealot. Uh, Thaddeus is also called Judas, son of James. I don't know for sure, but I'm guessing after Judas Iscariot, Thaddeus was like, can we just go with Thaddeus? Like, I, I, I don't want to be the other Judas. Let's just go with Thaddeus, right? And so... I just, I want us to see this, and there, scholars have even looked at this, and there's even like some affinity of life interests among the groups. So that red bank, right, they were all fishermen. Those were all the guys that Jesus called. 
the middle bank there, you can tell by the gospels they write and the questions they ask. These are like your thinkers. These are your analytical minded folks. And then the green block, all of those folks had kind of Jewish Israel nationalist preferences, Simon the Zealots. And so all that to say that this is at least interesting and has led some scholars to essentially say, right? This is my paraphrase of what the scholars say. Oh my goodness, among the 12 disciples, Jesus put them in 365s. Right, I mean, it's at least reasonable to recognize the way that those guys are grouped up. And so listen, later in the New Testament, Paul instructed Timothy and Titus both. And like, I want you to get groups of people together. Get your older women with your younger women and help women chase the Lord. Get your older men with your younger men and help those men learn to chase the Lord together. That was the plan. Now, as Jesus sought to make disciples, he used different gears, right? He taught the crowds, he trained the 12, he went a little deeper, a little closer with the three. Here's the prayer, okay? We don't want to do anything as a church that doesn't flow from our mission of making and multiplying disciples, amen? Right, we exist to reach BA and beyond by multiplying disciples to follow Jesus. That's what we're here for. But here's the reality, Different people experience different levels of discipleship depending on where you currently participate. For example, if, the only, if your only participation in our church right now is that you come to big church, you come to worship, or that you tune in online, I would say, we're so glad you're here. And there's a kind of, you hear the word preached and you're in the worship, there's a kind of discipleship that happens in this room. We praise the Lord for that. But here's what we believe. There's another step. And so the hope is that you would at some point move out of this room and into what we call Sunday school small groups, right? And again, that's kind of that, the more dynamics more of kind of the 12 disciples where you can be known, I mean, really known, and you can get some people around you that can pray for you and encourage you. And you're like, hey, you're trying to figure this out too. And there's so much good accountability that happens in the midst of that. And then 365s are really a Peter, James, and John kind of more smaller group knit kind of discipleship. Does, do 365s replace Sunday school? No. They're just a different gear. They work a little bit differently by the way that they are structured. What is a 365? Just again, a reminder, right? We've got these journals. Uh, you can look at these after service, but they will come to you. If you're in a 365, your leader will bring them to the first meeting, right? And so we want everybody who is interested in doing this to do this. But I want you to hear my heart today. There is no shame in not doing a 365. Like if, if you look at your life and you look at where you are with the Lord and you go, you know what, I... I don't know that I feel led to, to lead one of those right now. I don't know that I feel led to be in one of those right now. I would say that's okay. Then take whatever your next step is. And so if you're just here in worship, man, try it. Listen, go to Next Step Center after the service and ask about Sunday school classes. Come visit one next week. Get into a group. If you're in a group, if you may say, I want a 365, then you can take the next step into whatever that is. It's we're all at different places in our spiritual journeys, right? And that's just reality. And so what we're trying to do as a church is to keep putting in gears, those same kind of gears we believe Jesus used to try to help people become everything God wants them to be. I mentioned earlier 2 Timothy, or, or Timothy, in one of the earlier sermons, Pastor Matt read 
2 Timothy 2.2, and I want you to see a 1 and 2 on the screen. 2 Timothy 2.1 and 2, Paul writes to Timothy, You then, my child, be strengthened in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And what you've heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. And there in verse 2, as Pastor Matt pointed out, there's four generations of discipleship there in that one verse. That's the plan. That's how God wanted it to go, right? And so Paul was, a, Paul, was Paul to Timothy, but the point is that Paul had a Paul, right? And then Timothy had a Paul, but then ultimately Timothy became a Paul. And so if you think about that relationship, to be a disciple means at some point we all, all had, we are a Timothy, who is being poured into by Paul, at some point to multiply disciples, to experience all that God has for you and has redeemed you to do, you've got to turn that corner to becoming a Paul, who now is ready to begin investing in a Timothy. Take what you've heard from faithful men and pass it on, and pass it on, and pass it on. The evangelist Billy Graham said that verse, 2 Timothy 2.2, shaped his understanding of discipleship more than any other verse in the Bible. So if you've heard the name uh, Dawson Trotman, uh, he was the guy who created the Navigators, the Bible Memory Plan. And so Trotman spent some time investing in Billy Graham. And so Billy Graham said, man, the first verse that he made me get out of Bible and memorize was 2 Timothy 2.2. And as Billy Graham reflected on that for years to come, here's what he said about it. Billy Graham said, 2 Timothy 2.2 is like a mathematical formula for spreading the gospel and enlarging the church. Paul taught Timothy. Timothy shared what he knew with faithful men, and the faithful men were supposed to teach others also. And so the process goes on. If every believer followed this pattern, the church could reach the entire world in one generation. Mass crusades, in which I believe and to which I have committed my life will never accomplish the great commission. He goes on to say, man, discipleship through relationships. Now listen, I hope we all would agree that God used Billy Graham in a rather significant way, right? By some estimates, either in person, through radio, TV, whatever, during Graham's life, 2.2 billion people heard the gospel articulated through the vocal cords of Billy Graham, which is amazing. You think about all that God used him for. But I just want to point out with excitement about 365s, even Billy Graham knew that the best plan to really see life changed and disciples multiplied is what we're hoping to do with 365s. It's small groups of people, men, women, praying, reading, accountability, making that journey together. Well, you may say, well, okay, what's my next step? And so I, I put a list here of who you might be. And I want to give every, whatever you are, kind of as you're thinking about this, I want to give you your next step. So number one, if you're a man or woman who is open to being a leader of a 365, um, even if you took the training, if you're open to being a leader, we are going to ask you to text the word multiply to 45776. And then I think there's a QR code as well. Is that right? Maybe. Or maybe not. It's out on the screen outside. So if you see a QR code next to that, scan it. But if you text multiply, if you're like, I think I want to be a leader. Now, you may say, well, I am interested in leading, 
but because you're a goofball, you only offer training on Wednesday nights when I'm already in re-engaged or I'm serving in our next gym ministry or our student ministry or wherever we're, you're in the worship ministry. And so that was the best time, but here's what become, has become really clear to us. We don't want the way we train to be a limiter in this. So we recorded last Wednesday night and coming up, we will make that available to you. And so if you're interested in leading but couldn't come to the training, if you will text the word multiply to 45776, you'll get a little form back and it will have in there, I'm interested, but I still need the training. And so enter that conversation with us and we'll get that information to you. Now, maybe you're not ready to lead a 365. Maybe you just want to be in one. You're like, I'm interested in being in one. Good news. You just need to text the word multiply to 45776. Okay, and you're going to get a form back that's going to have the information that you need. Now, some of you are going to already say, I kind of know who I would like to be in my group. Great. Text multiply to 45776 and it'll, it'll come to you. You may say, I'd love to be in a 365, but I don't know who to ask. Text multiply to four, five, seven, six, right? That, that's how, that is the next step. What's the next step? That is the next step. Now, in our spiritual development office, it may take us a minute to get back with everybody, but that's the plan. That is the next step. I'm gonna invite our worship team to come. We're gonna get ready to respond, but I wanna give you kind of one final thought this morning. If the Lord tarries, sometimes I think the return of Christ, I'm surprised he hasn't come yet when I look at some of the crazy things happening and the way prophecies fulfilled. But if he tarries, there's going to come a day in your life when some loved ones of yours will gather around a cemetery and, or a like a grave plot in a cemetery and hopefully they'll say some nice things about you, right? And, and they're on your tombstone. They're gonna put your name and hopefully some other nice words about you or something. And, and then they're gonna put your birth date and your death date. And so it's been this idea, but like, how are you gonna spend your dash? Right? How are you gonna live out that life in between? And here, I wanna tell you God's will for your life. Like unequivocally, it is God's will for your life that your dash, part of what you leave behind is a legacy of multiplying disciples. God never just saved you for you. The gospel came to you on the way to someone else. Transformation came to you on the way to someone else. And everything we're doing is trying to see people reached and then to see people multiplied. And so God wants that to be your legacy. Now we've talked about 365s today, but there may be a lot of next steps that you feel called to take today. You may say, well, okay, I, I am ready to get into a small group. Great. You can come down and share that with one of our pastors in a second, or you can go to the next step center. You may say, I'm, I'm, in, a, I'm in a Sunday school class. I don't have a place to serve. And maybe that's your next step. Get involved in our next steps ministry. Maybe you are in a group. Maybe you, maybe you are in a group already in 365s. Maybe a Wednesday study is the next step. The hope is simply that you would take whatever that next step is. Now, 2 Timothy 2.2 is the whole multiplication verse. But look at what set that up in 2 Timothy 2.1 on the screen. You then, my child, Paul writes, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Okay, listen, just go back to verse 1. Hang there. So listen, so verse 1, right, look at this. You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And so can I just tell you today, if you are here or if you are listening and you don't yet know Christ, His grace is even more amazing than maybe you've heard. 
And His grace is available, but it's not automatic, right? It, it, it's, it is someplace. It's in Christ. And so are you in Christ today? Have you come to that place in your life where you're like, man, I, I know that I'm a believer. And if you don't know that for sure, we're going to have pastors down front and We'd love to just get to hear your story and share Jesus' story and how today uh, you can see your eternity change. You can move from death to life. Um, We are trying to create this atmosphere at the end of our services that all of us respond to the Lord in some way. Amen? And so that may, you may not need to come forward and talk to a pastor, but maybe your response today is to stand and sing. Maybe today as you think about 365s, maybe God's spoken something else here. Maybe you need to spin around right there where you sit and just pray right there at your chair. We're hoping going, moving forward as a church that we're a church that is, uh, comes forward and prays at the altar when we need a change of location to hear from the Lord more clearly. And so we're going to respond a little bit longer than we have some weeks today. And would you sing? Would you pray? Would you simply just say, Lord, God, what would you have me do? And if what your next thing to do is, is to trust in Christ, you can text the word Jesus to 45776.